Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tapped into Psychedelics. I'm your host, Adam Tapp, and with me is my friend and producer, Handsome Jason. And today's guest is Dr. Michelle Weiner, who is a double board certified in interventional pain medicine, physical medicine rehabilitation, and the owner of Spinal Wellness America. So how are you doing, Michelle? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. And so, you know, we, we met at the Miami conference and you were sort of had a booth regarding the ketamine work. And, you know, I've never really explored ketamine much more than recreational back, you know, in high school. And, and I've met several people who have had some very profound experiences with ketamine. And I thought there's no better way to get a, a more significant understanding than with someone like you, for instance. So, Thank you. you know, let's, there's so much to talk about right now, but let's just kind of start with a relatively good opener in in the sense of like, what what is ketamine? Where did it come from? You know, and how does it necessarily work in the human body to right. provide these effects? Right. And that's a great question because so many people try to understand why we can use ketamine for mental health and for pain. So it actually came from PCP and it was first used in 1970 in the Vietnam War. And it was used for acute pain. So if someone had an injury, they could use ketamine to take away their pain because it's a dissociative anesthetic, but it also allowed them not to have the same type of memory related to the trauma. So they actually had pain relief and also less PTSD, let's say. And so that was in 1970, and then it took until 1990 for it to become available for chronic pain. And so it's a Schedule Three medication. It's completely legal, and it's actually part of the core medicines that the World Health Organization says is necessary to have a medical program. So it's a, it's a very safe medication. We use it in the OR, and we use it in the OR because when we do surgery and we injure the body, we have this separation between body and the brain. And so what it does is allows us to do surgery on the body and not have the person feel the pain and also not remember what's going on. So being a dissociative anesthetic allows for pain relief, but the dissociation is actually very protective. And then in 2018, they had FDA approval as a breakthrough therapeutic medication for depression. So it's evolved from an acute pain medication to something we use in the OR, to something for chronic pain, and now we're using it for treatment resistant depression. Well, and it's really interesting too, like the, the mechanism of being sort of a disassociative and amnesic and analgesic, like it, it kind of makes sense. It's, it's fairly cut and paste, but then when you start using it for treatment resistant depression and, and PTSD in these contexts, you know, it's all of a sudden now you're extending to a whole different mechanism. And how does that generally work? Like how, do, how does someone you know, go from a suicidal state and then to a complete alleviation for a duration. Right. So, so it actually blocks a receptor called the NMDA receptor, which is responsible for what's happening in the body in terms of the glutamate and GABA balance. And so the glutamate is a neurotransmitter. It's the most prominent in our brain. It's an excitatory neurotransmitter. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So what it's basically doing is it's, it's an interesting process in terms of pain, because when we feel pain from our body, it goes from the periphery into our central nervous system from the spine up to the brain. These NMDA receptors are located all along the path. They're in the dorsal horn of the spine. They're in the different parts of the brain, like the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus. 
And so basically what it's doing is it's blocking this receptor and the GABA interneurons are disinhibited. So what that basically means is it's causing this glutamate surge. And by having this glutamate surge, it causes downstream neuroplastic effects, which basically means that someone may be more open to learn something new, to feel a different way, to disconnect themselves from their identity where they're very stuck in that thought process. So it's different than the classic psychedelics, which activate the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor, but it's very similar in the sense that they both cause this glutamate surge, which causes neuroplasticity. And so I think the bigger picture when it comes to psychedelics, it's not just does this treat pain? What type of pain? Does this treat mental health, depression, PTSD, anxiety? We're not really putting people into these boxes of conditions anymore. I think what we're trying to do is realize that we have this state of chronic stress. And because of chronic stress, there's a lot of changes in the nervous system. And the way that we can decrease this or almost reverse this is by blocking that NMDA receptor and actually trying to balance glutamate. And so it's, it's an interesting thing because people often say, well, how come this is an anesthetic and I use it for pain, but then I can also use it for mental health. And it's really the same concept. It's giving someone essentially a timeout, a space where they can really just say, okay, let me just get into this other state where I don't feel stuck in my thoughts or I don't feel stuck attached to this identity of I'm living in a painful body or I'm stuck on these medications or whatever it is, but it allows them this time out to kind of explore the space. And that's why we always say with psychedelics that it's this opportunity to say, let's be curious. What else can I wake up from this session and feel different or think different or behave different? See, I really, really appreciate the fact that you just sort of mentioned the idea of decompartmentalizing all these conditions into an overwhelming sense of that it's our stress that fundamentally is causing this. Because it seems like, you know, modern medicine has this tendency to provide Band-Aid solutions for symptoms. I'm like, oh, you have pain, here's a narcotic. You have depression, here's an SSRI, which fundamentally doesn't really do anything other than mask symptoms. And I know that on your webpage and everything and through conversation, you, you sort of take, I don't know if holistic is the appropriate word to describe this, but more of like an overall change in someone's lifestyles and habits associated with this. Because, you know, simply just taking a medication and allowing, you know, something to occur inside you doesn't always have long-term results, but someone having this ketamine experience, and then you might even say integration associated with that, and then a change in your behavior and lifestyle does actually lead to the long-term effects of dealing with the underlying condition. That seemed like a reasonable right. statement. And, and it's a great point because I think we've moved from holistic to more integrative. And I think the they're very similar. Basically, what we're doing is we're treating the whole person, right? We're not treating your brain. We're not treating your body. And even pain. Pain is basically an experiential uh, sensation. You don't even have to have physical tissue damage to have Pain. And people think pain is physical only, right? And that's the problem. Like depression to me is just emotional pain. So so the word pain has become its own specialty, but it's so separate than psychiatry. And that's where I kind of come in and try to tell people why are we in our own boxes trying to, you know, um, trying to treat people based on specific conditions. We're actually treating the whole person. And so the the 
point of psychedelics is really this exploration of trying to understand that maybe trauma disconnected the body and the brain in a certain way, or maybe the person was associated with a specific behavior at the time of a trauma, and then that became a suppressed emotion that may live in the body. And so our emotions actually live in the body. And everybody talks about the body keeps the score and how amazing that book is, but it's really such a, it's such a, it's, it, you know, it's, it's such, it's such a concept that we are starting to get used to right now. But I think a lot of it does have to do with the underlying chronic stress that we're living in and how that relates to inflammation in our central nervous system, which can of course cause depression because of atrophy of neurons. And then we're not able to move forward in our lives. And, you know, that's kind of what ketamine does is it that that whole negotiation, should I get out of bed? Should I not get out of bed? The, the voice that we hear in our in our head that doesn't allow us to move forward, ketamine actually works on that interneuron. It says, okay, let's get out of bed now, you know? And so it becomes this disruptor. You can take this medication in a safe environment with preparation, and now parts of the brain that have never communicated start to communicate. You get this global integration, or what we call functional connectivity, that allows the brain to start processing in a different way that shows up to us in, well, now we're going to change the way we're thinking about something or how we feel or uh, our actions are going to change as well. So everyone talks about the snow globe, right? Like Robin Carhart Harris with the uh, entropic brain or the rebus model, reflects relaxed beliefs under psychedelics. And the point is once you have that state of entropy where there's, this disruption and more parts of the brain are communicating afterwards what happens. And that that's to me really important is after a ketamine session or a psychedelic session, then how do we put those pieces back together in a different way than, than before? And that's really where the therapeutic alliance and the support and the team comes in. It's not just the medication, which is why even though ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic, not a classic psychedelic, it still has that similar um, downstream effects where then, okay, well, how do we support them to bring them into a new state in their lives? And that's where the holistic part comes in. What are they eating? Are they moving their body? Um, how can we, how can we help them identify that voice in their head that isn't serving them? And then how do we make a protocol, which we call pacing? So little by little, we're going to start integrating different things that you think you can't do, but there's no reason why you can't do it. And it's really trying to help them understand this is a safe signal. Your body is just misinterpreting it as fear or as pain. And so I really oftentimes tell my patients, every time you say pain, just put the word fear in because it's essentially the same thing. What are you, what are you afraid of? And also once we know that anatomically and structurally everything's okay, now it's just you interpreting what these signals are and, um, similar to like a uh, faulty smoke detector, right? If it's going off when it shouldn't go off, then how do we know when there's really an emergency or not? And people just get used to things are causing them the, that feeling that feels like there's fear or there's something wrong. And then they kind of get used to that. And then that's where the isolation comes in. They're less connected. They're less willing to participate in different activities. And, and that further makes them less resilient to stress. And so it's really, it's such an interesting thing because it's such a mind, body, open medication. And so 
you know, it's not for everyone. And it's also not for everyone at certain times in their lives. So there's a lot of people I meet who maybe their family member wants them to try this, but they're not ready to try it. And you really can't be pushed into this. It's something that, you know, you have to really say, okay, I'm willing to go into this state, explore it a little bit and come out and say, let's make change. Well, and it's funny that you say that because I absolutely agree. Like I, people can really only be helped if they want to be helped. And they have to be willing to look inside at what is the underlying root of these causes. And one of the interesting things you said is, you know, about the idea of pain and idiopathic pain or things like fibromyalgia and stuff like that, where you are experiencing pain, but there's no physiological response. You know, you're not having, you know, a pin in your finger or anything like that. There's nothing physical occurring and that these are sort of manifestations of internalized stress. And... It's sort of an interesting concept that if you're in perpetual crisis, your body is responding to that and, you know, cortisol release, long-term stress responses and the chronic inflammation that it occurs in your body. And, you know, sometimes I wonder too if a lot of these autoimmune disorders are sometimes caused by your own chronic stress response. So, you know, things like chronic pain, for instance, and, and, just, and you may have answered this and I apologize if I'm bringing it back up again, but say someone has chronic pain with no specific response. Like there's no reason for it. Like it, it completely idiopathic or even the sense of like phantom limb pain. So is the way the mechanism in which it treats is that you are able to disassociate from the trigger psychologically of what's occurring and that you can sort of have a neuroplastic response that allows you to basically cut that connection or cut that thread and then sort of rebuild in, in a mechanism that's more productive or healthy? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good understanding of it. There's this process of central sensitization, and that's really the core of a lot of these nosoplastic and neuropathic pain states. Similar to fibromyalgia, chronic migraines, phantom limb, cluster headaches, pelvic pain, all of these things, even depression. There's no true biomarkers that we're measuring to understand what's happening in the body. They just have symptoms, and we can't really relate it to the physical tissue. So what what ends up happening is in central sensitization, which means that you've had pain in the periphery for so long that those peripheral sense uh, uh, receptors are no longer sensing pain in the same way. They become desensitized. It spreads up into the central nervous system. Central sensitization basically means your, your whole brain and spine are hyper-reactive, hypersensitive. And in that state, there's an upregulation of NMDA receptors. So the core of central sensitization is this NMDA receptor activation. So that's kind of the physiology of why if you block that receptor, it could potentially reverse some of the central sensitization. And these states, they, they even termed them nosoplastic, plastic meaning the ability to change, right? And nosy is, is a, a pain, like nociception is basically any type of analgesia, like type of pain. So nosoplastic states are... These, it's like a new form of pain. Like when I when I was training, I never heard of nosoplastic pain. And, and even now, a lot of physicians don't even really understand what it is. But there's actually an overlap with depression, PTSD, and these physical pain states all basically put under nosoplastic pain. It's like a new code for, for pain, which is interesting because it basically means we don't have all the answers. <laughs> and not only do we not have all the answers, but we need to educate people that when they have fibromyalgia, for example, that it is a real condition 
and they are really suffering. And just because we can't do MRIs and do blood work and figure out what's the root cause of it, it's probably unhealed trauma, chronic stress, then some type of physical um, insult happens to the body when they're in this relatively helpless state and their, their uh, central nervous system becomes more sensitive to pain and it reorganizes their whole central nervous system. So now there's a change that they're not used to. And the way that we all work is based on these prediction models. You know, if I go to this uh, event, how is that going to make me feel? If I get up out of bed and do this physical activity, is that going to cause me pain, right? So we, we're always trying to figure out based on what our past experiences have has been and how we judge these experiences. Is this going to cause me pain? Am I going to enjoy this? So the the what we're really trying to do is is kind of put down those boundaries that we have limited within ourselves. So like the patients tell me all the time, I can't do this. And, and I and it's not that I'm not compassionate, but I get to this to a point where I'm like, you can do it. You're actually limiting yourself. You're just telling yourself you can't do this because you're stuck in this process thinking that movement will cause pain. There's actually a, a study that just came out that says for chronic pain, the only thing we can all agree on is that exercise is a good treatment option. That's literally like the only thing that we can actually say for chronic low back pain and osteoarthritis. Movement is important. Movement's important for so many reasons, and that's why we do pacing. Pacing is, okay, walk for five minutes. Now walk for 10 minutes. Now let's do 15 minutes. And and little by little, we get out of that I can't state, and the boundaries start to kind of blur itself a little bit, and we get to really have more of that body-mind openness, which is which is really, you know, a way, and that's kind of like, you know, I always say the, the psychedelics are almost like, they're a catalyst to open you up, a tool to do the work, but people are just very stuck and rigid in their thinking and it shows up in their body and then they get muscle spasms and then they're guarding. And so it becomes this whole process where, you know, even when I sit in the room with a patient, I always say it's the experience of the patient. It's not, I don't give them a diagnosis. It's more, I'm sitting in the room with this patient. What is the energy like? Does it feel down and kind of low and kind of depressed? Does it feel hyper and anxious? I mean, that's kind of the difference between someone who has a chronic pain in a hypersympathetic state versus someone who has a chronic pain with more leading to depression. Either way, we're trying to get them into that parasympathetic state, but the experience of the patient is really important because also that determines, you know, What's the dose going to be? Are they going to be able to handle this ketamine session? Is it going to make them more anxious? So there's so many things that go into this. But, you know, either way, I my opinion really is that there's not just going to be one psychedelic for one condition because, again, we're treating the whole person. And so there may be some psychedelics that someone enjoys that state more than another state. Maybe someone doesn't like the dissociation. Maybe... Um, and then maybe someone does like the dissociation. And that's kind of the point of doing a few sessions in a row so that they actually get comfortable in that state so that they no longer are confused and they're more curious. They can have more of an active role in the actual journey as opposed to a fear-based one. So, you know, I think it's it's interesting to see how things will play out. The way that our system works is we need studies that become FDA approved for specific conditions. 
And there's so much blurring of, you know, is this chronic depression related to PTSD or their chronic pain? And so will ketamine work more because it's pain versus PTSD, maybe MDMA? Like, I don't really believe in that. I really think that it's an interesting time that we're living in, but there's, there's just too much crossover. And I think, I think obviously we need this process to make sure things are safe. I think the biggest issue right now is the long-term durability of these and people's protocols. And, you know, I think that's kind of the future is trying to understand how to maximize these medications, but pay attention to the mental health services, even for the chronic pain patients. So, so Michelle, it sounds like there's a lot of things going on there. Um, Would it be safe to say kind of just to simplify it a little bit? One of the main focuses of ketamine is that it's breaking down those mental barriers that people are kind of putting up in themselves that are resulting in these long-term um, non-physically diagnostic pain um, pathologies? Yeah, so so I think it's it's kind of um, bringing down those barriers. Right. And and so that's why it's, there's like an effective component. Like there's a behavioral component to, to pain. There's an emotional component to pain. There's the physical part of pain. So it's actually an anesthetic. It's giving you pain relief, but obviously it only gives you pain relief for a period of time. Every medicine has a half-life. Right. It's more downstream effects. And that's why we do a few sessions in a row with some therapy or coaching so that it becomes this new way of living as opposed to just, you know, one session of ketamine helps people out of acute suicidality that we know for sure, but it also can help people become less depressed. But perhaps that really stems from the fact that it's creating neuroplasticity and stress just you know, deprived people of the ability for them to move forward because of atrophy of their their neurons. So, I, I it's 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 an interesting thing, but I think the overall um, the overall big picture is chronic stress and neuroinflammation. Right. It's not depression versus pain. And and do you think too, with ketamine being a dissociative in the way that it operates, I, I found in my work, and Adam could probably attest to this as well, uh, when we're treating in an acute care and emergency setting. Um, I tend to find people with fibromyalgia or depression, um, these sort of symptoms or uh, pathologies that you're discussing that ketamine can help treat, they tend to be uh, hyper fixated or hyper aware of their somatic symptoms. Um, they they can almost identify like if you ask them to sit there and, and think about it, they can actually like identify their heartbeats, they can count, they can feel these like very minimal somatic changes that most people might not identify uh, on the day to day with ketamine being dissociative, um, do you think some of the mechanism of action is that it almost resets their awareness of their body so that they kind of reestablish their baseline? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I believe that, that, uh, they can, they can focus on their body and less on the voice and we make them more aware of the fact that their mind is not their brain and the voice that they're hearing that's stopping them is not even true sometimes. You know? <laughs> no, that's fair. <laughs> no, seriously, no, that's a reasonable voice, statement. A voice that, that is controlling your decisions, <laughs> you know, that, that voice can change very quickly, but the body doesn't lie. So I think a lot of times it's trying to refocus a person out of that pain voice or out of that depressed voice back into the body so that they first, and, and anything, you know, we first feel it in our body. Like if you're, if you're going into something that's uncomfortable, there's some type of feeling that you first feel in the body that then informs the mind or the brain. And then it brings the pain or that situation into our consciousness. So it's actually refocusing people back into the body 
and letting and like a, a lot of times I'll tell them to do like a body scan while they're in uh, that dissociative state or try to really think about I had a patient once who had chronic migraines and he, his whole session was was basically like there was this little light in his brain that sort of was him and that's how he were, you know kind of understood it it was like the energy of who he is and he was trying to push this light around his brain and outside of his head because he had these migraines for so long so it's like this you know it's an interesting time for them to just be curious and understand where it came from the other thing that came up was the fact that he never agreed his sister's passing away and so it was it like these two things came up and i didn't know about obviously his his sister and he just came to me for migraines and so his session was actually just very interesting to him you know it was it was as it was it wasn't anything for him to be um let's make a new treatment plan based on that but it just allowed him to say oh you know what maybe i should process this i never really processed my sister passing away or you know the concept of there's this little light in my brain that is the source of my migraines what does that even mean you know it's not it's not a true um physical pain generator so there's so many things we can understand but i think the most important thing is to explain to the patient sometimes we don't know everything but we can explain to them how the body and the brain are connected so that then when they have these painful situations they can maybe make a different choice or get out of that i can't um thought process right and and speaking of that i can't thought process i just want to loop back to something you said earlier you said ketamine therapies aren't necessarily for people who aren't ready to experience them how is it that somebody would know when they're ready to participate in a ketamine therapy or how do you kind of guide people who maybe come to you and you identify no this isn't the right time for you or yes this is the right time to move forward with this so uh, i would i i really like to know the person um what's going on in their psychological situation as well as social environment before we give them a medication that can disrupt thought processes that then we have to help them repair and move forward with so for me it, i even for my pain patients i either have them work with a coach or a therapist and what we want to do is just prepare them in a way that we kind of lay out anything that could potentially come up so we discuss any type of past trauma the incident which maybe caused the pain or any other things that they think would be something that they would want to address. And sometimes it helps and sometimes other things come up. But for me, it's really to know who's who in their life and who's going to be home once they get there to support them, what kind of relationship they have with those people, what their life, what their work life looks like. So I really get to know the person a little bit more and then understand what are their personal beliefs about psychedelics. Because I think that the stigma is something that, and I've learned this from the cannabis industry, you know, trying to explain to someone who's on opioids why cannabis can help with pain, um, you know, it's, it's the same type of thing. So if they have a certain stigma about psychedelics going into it, they already have this rigid mindset that their body will also become kind of rigid in that thinking. So we like to prepare them as much as we can. I give them a lot of information and... Um, and then it's really making sure they feel safe in the environment. We're giving them the ketamine in, discussing the dose. Have they had any previous experience with psychedelics? Do they have a lot of anxiety about it? I don't, I don't really think body weight is the answer to dosing, unfortunately, but that's how 
things have been based on different studies. Um, so it's 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 a bigger picture. And, and there's a lot of people that come to me for ketamine. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm you're not ready for ketamine. You need to we need to work with you for a few sessions before even giving you the medication. Sometimes I'll microdose them with a low dose of ketamine during a therapy session as this lubricant to kind of open them up, talk a little bit, because I don't want them to come out of these sessions and not be able to share. So it's a bigger process in terms of the preparation. And then, of course, the integration is important for long-term change. So I have a question for you. You know, you were you were speaking before about how other psychedelics and, you know, classic psychedelics, which we normally perceive as tryptamines, which generally are like 5H2A receptors. So ketamine and these tryptamine psychedelics kind of fundamentally do a similar thing in the aspects of neuroplasticity and but they respond to different receptors. So would combinations of which be more beneficial in a synergistic response as opposed to, you know what I mean, in the sense of like, if you're targeting one receptor in this manner or another receptor in this manner, would the combination of two, not necessarily at the same time, and actually not at the same time, but I mean like a therapy that was integrated and using psilocybin at one point and then using ketamine at another point, would that be more beneficial? That is 100% the way that I believe it should be. For example, like we you know, a chronic pain patient. We do a few ketamine sessions. We give them some pain relief. We separate them from their pain. We allow them to understand they are not their physical pain. We move past that. And then we maybe give them MDMA. And then we kind of open them up and allow them to start trusting people and bonding with their family. And then we deal with some past trauma and memory reconsolidation and, you know, Flex, cognitive flexibility and then maybe their pain comes back up and we give them a few ketamine sessions so you know i believe that would be the future i believe that it should be we're using specific psychedelics at different times in their healing process there's some people honestly that just don't like the, the dissociation so now we're really giving everyone ketamine because that's what's legal and everything else is schedule one but they have to either get comfortable in that space or it's not going to work for them. I have I have patients who have addiction, especially to alcohol, and they respond in a way that I wouldn't expect to ketamine. I mean, there's many patients that I've given one dose of ketamine to and they don't come back because they really don't like the dissociation. I think it's really the fact that they're so scared of what their subconscious is going to show them. And then the fact that they don't want to come back to therapy because they don't really want to make change, which basically just to me says they're not ready. And, and you know, they're, they're not ready. And that's totally fine. We're not trying to push them to continue to do it. But sometimes it opens them up in a way that they're not even ready to handle based on what's going on in their lives. And really addiction is actually also a form of neuroplasticity. They're using a substance over and over, making that circuit in their brain stronger, which is still neuroplasticity. It's just a negative form of neuroplasticity. So um, again, I think it really has to do with having them, having them understand the big picture and then using the medications at different times for the right reasons and allowing them to understand this is the goal of this session and this is the goal of this medication. And you're a person, you're not a disease or a condition or a symptom. Well, it's funny because I didn't realize how complicated this integrative approach is. And it almost seems like, you know, each 
each patient chart and file would be like a, a tomb of novels based on the fact that you're you're getting into every aspect of their life and and tailor making treatments to the individual and what's going on in their life and you know and I, I completely agree with you too in the idea of like you know substance abuse generally being a coping mechanism and a, generally a negative one and you know things like alcohol as a depressant and opioids usually as a mechanism to sort of escapism you know to, to move away from whatever you know suppressed trauma or not so suppressed trauma is present in their life and then taking ketamine or a psychedelic is basically facing said trauma and that in itself can be a little bit alarming and so finding the right time the right moment the right patient the right medication and the right post psychedelic treatment plan is a very complicated endeavor <laughs> like it's it really right. is i mean i i would say that the thing that i've learned the most is that the team the actual people that are participating with the patient, not the medicine, not the dose, not the route of administration, are almost more important than the medication. The, me the, the ketamine is there as this catalyst. Once you've gotten to this place where you feel stuck in your body or your mind, where trauma has really disconnected the two, or you have gone so long in a certain path that now you need a medication to kind of open you up and then cause that neuroplasticity. But the team is the most important because Perhaps someone doesn't want a therapist. They have the stigma of, I've already done therapy. That's not going to work for me. Maybe someone is performing well and they just need some accountability and they need a coach in their life instead. So, uh, And then maybe some people need a low dose of ketamine so that they can talk through a trauma because they don't want to sit in a room and do it by themselves. So there's, there's all different ways of using the medication, which is the beauty of ketamine. You can give a low dose, a high dose, a long infusion, an intramuscular. I could give you, I could stack it with three shots, two shots. Like that, you know, it's it's such a beautiful medication. It has a short half life. It's so safe. It doesn't affect respiratory suppression. There's so many ways that I can use it. So that's why it's more important to understand the person and not just look at them, you know, as a diagnosis, obviously, but really to allow them to get back into a state of who were you before this actually happened? And then now what do you want to be going forward? And that has to do with having them connect to themselves in a deeper way so that they feel aligned. And I think that there's so much of this, you know, maladaptive behaviors based on the fact that people are functioning with their brain and their body disconnected. <laughs> and it's, it's like, it's, it really is, you know, it, how can someone listen to their body when they don't trust what their body is sending them is actually accurate? So I think a lot of it is is getting back into the body and out of the that voice in your head. Well, and it's interesting too that we're sort of taught that our mind and body are two separate entities. You know, I mean, like psychiatry being way over here, and the general body of medicine being what we establish as as Western medicine. You know what I mean? Like from a very right. young age, we're we're taught subconsciously, consciously conditioned or whatever to believe that our mind and body are two separate entities. And then, you know, try to reframe that entire thing to someone who's arguably indoctrinated their entire life is sort of a difficult process. I know. And that's really what it is. It's allowing people to understand we don't know everything and we're still learning it. And, and like, why do you think there's no cures in psychiatry? You know, like there's literally <laughs> no, really though. Yeah. Like, Think about like every other specialty, like you fracture your ankle, you have surgery, you repair it, you do therapy, you walk on it, and you're good to go. 
psychiatry, you have a past trauma, it lives with you forever. Did you heal from it? Did you establish, you know, uh, what was the, the source of this trauma and how did it affect you and how can you move forward and how can you distance yourself from it? Even depression. People, people are really unsure of why they're so depressed. I think a lot of it has to do with this social disconnection and chronic stress. And then the question really is, how can we stop living in such a stressful environment? You know, that that's really, I think, what it is, is that there's all this data coming in all the time that's overstressing our nervous system. And it's really causing us not to be resilient anymore. And our, our tolerance to pain is, is changing. So it's a, it's a bigger picture. It's like, you know, curative psychiatry basically means getting to the root cause of why you're having these symptoms. And then moving forward and not staying on SSRIs for 20 years, which are not really yeah. helping you, right? So that's that's the point. It's supposed to be a disruptor. And that's why these medications are not supposed to be addictive. Because you do them a few times, you get to the root cause of it, and then you move forward. It's it's just a tool to, to open the door. And so I just want to kind of talk about something as well. Is that So you're involved in all sorts of advocacy groups with alternate medications, you know, specifically the vice president of Mr. Psychedelic Law, which in Florida is a nonprofit with your mission is designed to augment, change, reform psilocybin mushroom law within Florida. So how is that how is that working? You know, like Florida used to be a swing state. I feel it went super red. And do you think that political tribalism plays into psychedelics? Because like I I seen sort of partisan movements on psychedelics, but you know, in Florida right now, like how, how is that working and what kind of success are you guys having? Well, it's pretty slow. Um, we, I mean, Dustin Robinson is amazing and he's really led a lot of the legal changes, cannabis and now psychedelics. And so they did, um, the, one of the bills didn't pass. And so now they were changing it to more of a research bill. So other states have obviously legalized it for medical uses, but, um, we seem to be in Florida a little bit behind. So we were looking at it more. Can we do research with these substances? Uh, you know, every state's coming along, but there's, there's a lot of great advocates who are uh, open to this and really fighting hard, especially in Florida. But politically, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge here. I, I, I am hopeful that, you know, as we, it's like cannabis, you know, as other states have these changes, it's just a matter of, are we going to do it in, in what form? Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not about making psilocybin legal to everyone. It's about having an understanding of if this medication can help you and we have access to it. And again, I think a lot of it really stems from better research and, and it's not just better research. It's actually because people talk about, you know, the expectancy bias, you take a medication, you think you're going to get better or the placebo effect, the fact that, you know, is microdosing really helping if you don't really feel it? Is it placebo? Or the fact that it's hard to double blind someone yeah. from a psychedelic experience. <laughs> right. So yeah. these are all the challenges with research. And also the fact that, again, they're looking at a specific indication for a specific drug. But there's so many other issues really with research in terms of, well, did they get a high enough dose? What was the intervals in between the sessions? And I think like that, that to me is more important is really developing good protocols that work for most people, as opposed to this wheat based IV type of thing that we've been doing for a long time, because again, ketamine came from the anesthesiologist 
And now the psychiatrists are looking at it. They want to do intramuscular and have this more relational experience and have therapy involved in there. But the question really is, are people getting long-term effects? And I think with ketamine, we know it works for as an acute rapid antidepressant. It helps with acute pain. But how do we design protocols that allow for long-term effects? I think a lot of it has to do with educating people that there must be some type of maintenance involved. And people think, well, I'm just going to do these six sessions in a row and then I'm cured and I'm good to go. And then they fall back to some old pattern. So I think, I think, and then they're, they're almost hesitant to say, Hey, can I come back for, for ketamine sometimes? Because they look at it's it a like failure. a weakness, like yeah. did this work for me? Did this not? And, and that's something I really want to educate people on. Now that we've been using this for a while, what we've seen is it requires maintenance for both pain and depression. And that's okay. And, and similar to the fact that we're, you know, changing this paradigm of not taking a medication every day, perhaps this is still better than that, but it, it's not like a, it's not a, a cure. Ketamine is definitely not a cure, but it definitely helps you get to a certain place, but there has to be some maintenance. So let's just say in a beautiful alternate reality that, you know, the continental United States completely legalized psychedelics. So in that optimal environment, would your practice sort of utilize multiple different types of psychedelic compounds as well as ketamine? Like I'm assuming that you all of you, these integrative together and sort of an, an over-encompassing approach to interventional healing. Yeah, I actually believe MDMA would be great for pain. I, you know, I, I, I personally would love to use all of these in my practice, even though I'm pain management, I do have a nice team of therapists and coaches and even nurse practitioners that really specialize in more psychiatry. But again, I look at pain as both physical and emotional. So I, my goal is really to use these medications in the future for different conditions. But the question is whether or not the, the whole process, you know, is insurance going to cover it? And the way that things work, you know, how how difficult is it to say someone has tried an antidepressant these days? Like, <laughs> you know, that's that's a, a large majority of people. So I do believe it, it could be potentially easy to get these things approved based on the fact that most people have PTSD after COVID, let's say, or a lot <laughs> of people are, you know, have tried antidepressants or have some form of chronic pain. You know, even chronic pain, like how many people have chronic low back pain? And so I do want to use these medications in the future and I want to be able, and I think that's important is that we're, you know, physicians are not robots. Like by telling us to use this weight-based IV ketamine takes away the art of medicine. And, and, and yes, people, you know, if you give them too much space, they'll, you know, perhaps there's always outliers, right? But there is there is really getting to know the patient. I just think it's going to take a long time to be able to use different psychedelics on the same person because once the insurance covers it under a specific indication, again, they're keeping us into this like box, what's your diagnosis, what are the options that we have, then we're going to have to use that one and then to probably get to another one may be a challenge. But I, I think that it's, everything is, is very possible and people are doing great research for all different conditions. Uh, I know there was a great study done on MDMA for fibromyalgia. So that like, because think about that, that's going to give you obviously the neuroplastic changes, but also that increase in oxytocin and, and any, anyone who feels suffering needs to feel love, right? Like the, 
the, the polarities of these feelings. Anyone who, who has pain needs pleasure. Or you don't feel pleasure unless you felt pain, right? You don't feel love unless you know what suffering is. So I, I think I think a lot of these medications have great benefit. It's it's just you know it's it, it, as a pain doctor, low back pain is probably like the most common condition that I treat, right? Low back pain could be from your facet joints, your disc herniation, stenosis, your muscle spasms. It's all low back pain. So when you're dealing with mental health, you have different symptoms. It's kind of similar, like. For, for low back pain, maybe we do an injection, an epidural, right, versus a trigger point injection. That's treating different things, but it's always multifactorial. And so that's really what people need to start understanding is they're not their disease, they're not their diagnosis, and there's multiple moving parts that we need to kind of understand so that they can move forward in a more, you know, just a, just just in a way that they're able to, like, be more aware that they're aware or just to be grateful that they're alive. You know, they're so like Roland Griffith, um, which he's a, like the fight of a real great pioneer in this field. He, he was diagnosed with metastatic colon yeah. cancer, I believe. And so there was an article about him, um, whether or not when he found out he had a terminal disease, if he was going to take psychedelics and what that was going to offer him. And, you know, he, he basically said, wake up, you guys are alive. You know, you have the ability to to see the sun and to enjoy nature and to love your family. So it's, it's more of this just like, let's wake up. We just went through this whole period of such isolation and depression. And now we need community and now we need connection. And to get people up and out of their beds, sometimes they need these experiences Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's difficult, but it allows them to move forward. You know, for one, that that article was fantastic. I, I would I would arguably suggest it was inspirational, and I suggest anyone read it. It's Roland Griffith, and yeah, formerly worked at John Hopkins. Well, still, I guess. And you know, just bringing back to one thing, you were talking about back pain, and I'm like, you know, I remember like ten years ago, I had back pain to a point where I couldn't even get off the ground. Sometimes I'd like, you know slide a heating pad underneath and every morning getting out of bed would be like grunts and groans and try and loosen it up. And I didn't even think I could do my job anymore. I'm like, I can't be a paramedic. Like half my job is lifting people. And it's funny that I, I did Ibogaine and had this profound experience and, it, you know, it's <laughs> and a story in itself. But the next day I've, I've felt all these muscles relaxing. I have literally never had back pain again. Like, I mean, things like that to me are just amazing, you know, and the question really is, do you think if you did a different psychedelic, you would have had the same result? You know, and the thing is, is I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, let's be realistic. Different psychedelics very much have have a different sort of innuendo in your body. Like, you know, psilocybin has a very specific experience. Ayahuasca, specific experience. Ibogaine, very interesting experience. And... Whether any psychedelic would have caused that, it's hard to say. But, you know, like you were saying, the fact that we are all profoundly complicated emotional organisms and something that works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. And then having that variety actually gives a lot more opportunity for people to, you know, grow, expand, let go of different things at different times. And, you know, it's like I was only having one tool in your toolbox. I'm like, okay, well, I can bang shit with a hammer, but how am I supposed to do anything else? You know, that might be functional in specific context, but then having these other tools allows you to sort of target different aspects. And that kind of pertains to the idea too about the receptors, you know, different psychedelics target different receptors in your brain, but they also have very, very different experiences. 
You know, and I got to say, the, the way you speak about this and how you understand it, it does seem reminiscent, like you have a visceral understanding of said experiences. Perhaps I'm in, inferring something, but, you know, wh- where does your motivation come from this? Like, um, Well, you know what? I, I'll say, honestly, I initially, I initially went, my specialty is physical medicine and rehab. Okay. So a lot of people don't even know that specialty. And it was basically training on spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, musculoskeletal medicine. So I did a lot of neuro and ortho non-surgical. That was my training. But I really did enjoy spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. It's a a challenge. But that population, there's so many different complications that come up. And then there's the how do we move forward with our lives after we've had these traumas, right? So going into chronic pain, I, I, I went into my pain fellowship thinking, all right, I like to do procedures. I like to use my hands. Let's do these injections. And I really got, I just got this whole chronic pain population where I said, these things are great for acute pain. You give someone an opioid when they have surgery for a few days and they're off of it, or you do an injection and they get better. But the people of chronic pain, what are we doing for them? And, and how is this helping? And I was very close to my grandma and my grandma was someone who had chronic pain and she was a little lady and she had multiple vertebral fractures from having osteoporosis. Her husband, my grandpa, died many, many years ago. She lived a long life by herself and I I would visit her and, you know, the thing that would take away her pain was my love. You know, when I would see her, I would sit with her, I would touch her, I would kiss her. We we had such a very close relationship. And I and I always was just like so amazed with the fact that she had so much pain. She really did. She had multiple fractures in her body. She had procedures to fix it. And obviously, we didn't want to give her pain medication because of the side effects. But her attention was taken off of her pain when she felt love and when she felt pleasure and happiness and things like that. So it, it really, you know, it really made me try to understand what's the best way to treat chronic pain. It's not taking a medication there. We, she actually was taking tramadol, which eventually led to a bad complication and, and she passed away. And so one of my main goals was to try to get people off of opioids because that was a reason why it had led to, you know, the end of her life. And so one of the main reasons I started using cannabis was to help people try to decrease their opioids. And then I realized, okay, they're sleeping better, their mood improves, and cannabis does have the ability to alter our consciousness. And so after I started getting more comfortable with cannabis and my patients, I would say, okay, so now when you use it and you get that little bit of change in your consciousness, is that good or bad? And and I'll help them, even older people, try to understand that they can connect with themselves in a different way mind and body. And so obviously because I'm a pain doctor, I use ketamine in my fellowship, but really with long infusions, like complex regional pain syndrome is a sympathetic uh, nervous system issue with, with a lot of pain that I would do, you know, we would do eight hour infusions or six hour infusions. We would give them benzos, they would sleep. And then I realized that what are we doing? We're taking away the psychological insight. We're taking away the ability for them to be curious in in their journey and to understand themselves in a different way and to be more aware and to open that lens. So, so um, 
So it, it just, it, it led me to target more of the chronic pain population. And then when I was treating that population, I realized there's so much of a of an overlap with depression, PTSD, and chronic pain. And I can't just treat their pain and not treat their mental health. And so that's really how me getting into the psychedelics started because I realized that giving them pain medicine is only going to do so much. But if I'm not really helping them get back on their feet and change the way that they're thinking and feeling, it's not going to, it's not going to last. And then I'm just going to make them dependent on these medications. So what I'd rather do is kind of wake them up a little bit and have them live their lives so that they don't need me and they don't need to keep coming back to the doctor and they could start participating in their health care and you know, and, and I think that that is really what I want for the future is for people to rely less on pills and procedures and try to, you know, handle a lot of what's going on and understand it in a way that they don't need to rely on our Western medicine model. Well, I, I think that's amazing that, you know, the correlations that you draw from your experiences led to you taking sort of an integrative approach to how you treat people. Now, that doesn't necessarily reflect the vast majority of physicians who operate in in Western medicine. So you very much are, shall I say, a maverick? I don't I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but like you know, it it seems that you're sort of integrating Eastern and Western medicine philosophies together. Is that sort of an accurate statement? Yes, because I believe like Eastern medicine is dealing more with chronic conditions. And Western, Western medicine is great for acute things. You know, you go to the ER when you need them, you, you, you're having a heart attack, a stroke, like obviously we need Western medicine, but my population is the chronic pain population. Once something has turned into a chronic situation, then we have to understand it's no longer living just in that place that was injured. It's now in your brain, in your spine, and there's this whole reorganization that has happened that we have to, and that shows up in the ability of the person not to learn something new or to to ruminate on some type of memory or experience so it's it's really having people understand that that the central nervous system controls all of this and so after after so much time of living in chronic pain obviously your physical habits change and your behaviors change but it's trying to really make them more aware that there's much more that they can do breaking these patterns. It's just, it's so coded in their cortex that we have to like overwrite what's going on. And the only way to do that sometimes is to make them feel something, right? So that's what I try to tell the patients is actually focus more on your body. And did you feel for a little while that you didn't have pain or that you felt peaceful or was there a feeling of love that you haven't felt in a long time? So get more into that, which some people are, you know, when it comes down to it, I think like some people are, are they think, oh, this is like Eastern medicine and is there science behind it or whatever. But honestly, neuroscience is really catching up with mm -hmm. this. And I think people understand clearly we're suffering with pain, depression, that we need other options. So instead of just saying like, let's take another antidepressant or let's change my opioid, it's let's change this treatment pattern. Like let's change the protocol completely to get to a different source. But the thing is, if they don't understand where the pain is coming from, they're not likely to get better. So a lot of it is education, re-education, 
and um, understanding what makes your pain worse, what makes your pain better, because what makes people's pain worse? Stress, anxiety, lack of sleep, right? Not actually, you know, not actually what they think in the body. These are all um, sometimes like different uh, emotional changes that actually make their pain worse. Like I had a flare up of my pain. Why? Because I was, um, you know, or overworked and, and worked a 60 hour week and didn't sleep. And that made my pain worse. So when the person says that to me, it's like, did you hear what you just said? It wasn't like you ran a race and now you have more pain. It's uh, things that are in your psychological or social life are actually making your pain worse. So why would I only use a biomedical approach to treat your pain? Well, it's kind of interesting too, because you know, you're a pain specialist, but pain is a symptom. And to treat that symptom, you're fundamentally unraveling the human condition. You know what I mean? Like in a literal sense. Yeah. Like it's, you know what I mean? And And it's, it's unfortunate that more physicians don't take an approach like that because chronic pain is just one manifestation. You know what I mean? Like autoimmune disorders, the, the, you know, obesity, addiction. There, there's so many different things that all stem from the same underlying problem that you're treating. I think the, I think the issue was when they made pain the fifth vital sign. So instead of like blood pressure, heart rate, you know, respiration. So when they when they made pain a vital sign, like on a scale from one to ten, on this I subjective am so scale, so deeply familiar from, with that nonsense. I used to drive my students absolutely nuts with oh. this because it's like the thing that bothers me the most. <laughs> well, and I think it actually created even more of an opioid epidemic because when you think about the hospitals, you have this rating scale. If your pain is mild, moderate, or severe, you get Tylenol, an oral opioid, or an IV opioid. So it just created this scale to give people more medication, different medication, even opioid medication, as opposed to look at other countries. I mean, they're not using opioid. Like we use like the majority of the world's opioids. Well, and I'm also 99% sure that the same people who suggested to physicians to use that scale were also the people who manufactured OxyContin. You know, you know what I mean? So there's a little bit of a conflict of interest in that. It's like, oh, uh, you're uh, over a five out of ten. A hundred percent. That was Purdue Pharma. Yeah, no, again, totally it's Purdue. one of the reasons why Monsters. I hate the pain scale. Yeah. <laughs> and, and again, which is so important. Like the history of these meds are so important, which is why even with psychedelics now, it's taking so long to really get to this point where we're having this conversation. And I think it's you know, why do we think we're having this conversation now? Is it because chronic stress and so much trauma has allowed us to say we need better options or is it we realize that you know the the whole ssri thing or or oxycodone thing was really big pharma's way of pushing through these studies to kind of convince us of these things because then you have to be skeptical well are we doing that again you know so so i think but the difference is when you're having an experience you're the only person having that experience so it's 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 such a memory that you know that you participated in that there's no denying it like that you know even though you're lying in the recliner with eye shades on you feel like you just went on this magic carpet ride you know even though you were sitting in that recliner and it's just amazing how you can have this experience it's your experience and that's the difference with these medications they're just kind of dumbing things and making you kind of get through your day as opposed to waking you up and saying, 
let's be grateful. What should we do with ourselves? Well, and and we could get into a whole conversation about, you know, SSRIs are the perfect pharmacological substance to make huge amounts of money. You let people tread water. They take it every day. What a wonderful thing to do to increase your shareholder price. You know what I mean? Like it's a conspiracy or otherwise or whatever it is what it is. At the end of the day, it still amounts to the same thing. And, you know, here we are on what some might call the cusp of the psychedelic revolution. And, you know, I don't know if it's because people are waking up or people are just frustrated or futile or, you know, the events that have recently unfolded that are making people more skeptical of what they perceive as as conventional truth and wisdom. You know, like it's it's amazing how long a useful lie can permeate our culture. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems to continuously be stuck in, in motion. And I don't know how long it takes for us to get past it. But at the end of the day, here we are. Yeah, I, I well, and I think I think it's I think people are starting to understand these medica you know, there's all these documentaries too. But I think people are starting to understand, you know, big big pharma is good and bad. Like Big Pharma raises money so that we can have these studies. It's just who's analyzing these studies and who's funding these studies is is extremely important. I think people have learned that they want to feel, you know, and these medications may have blunted the ability for them to feel. And they are kind of staying in this, like, this is safe zone, right? And it's interesting. I read an article because I was, I was uh, for chronic pain that we used to have the concept that, the longer the infusion, the longer duration of pain relief. And so that's why we used to give like, you know, Monday through Friday, eight hour infusions. And hopefully that would last, you know, six months or whatever. And now there was something that came out that actually said the peak dose is more important than the length of the medication given. So, you know, so, and then, so how do, how do you evaluate that? Like, is that true in all cases? Obviously not. It's like, you know, there's one study that comes out that says this, another study that comes out that says this, who funded that study? Was it double blind, placebo controlled, randomized, you know, all, all of these things. But obviously we, we always need more studies. But the point is, is that perhaps like, for example, with Ibogaine, it's a peak experience that you don't have to repeat, right? Like sometimes with my with my patients with ketamine, we always start low and go slow. That's <laughs> yeah. like the cannabis thing, right? But we do it with ketamine too. We start low. We don't want to cause any anxiety. We want to just get them familiar with the space so that they're, you know, open to what it's going to be like so that we can continuously increase the dose or try to find that sweet spot, for example. But then someone has maybe, maybe I start at a low dose and they have a complete, you know, Dis- dissociative experience or that ego death or you know whatever you want to call it and just that one session wakes them up so that's something that i think is really interesting because i think we really try to do a good job of trying to do it slow and support them and then every once in a while i give someone a low dose but it causes such a large experience and such such a life-changing experience that then they actually don't need to come back so it's it's interesting it's like Sometimes I'll say to the patient, you know, what kind of day are you having? Like, what, what, you know, what, what's the intention today? And are you ready to, to go there? And sometimes it may be more beneficial to have that type of experience where then you don't have to keep chipping away. It's just, okay, I, I, I got there. I, I, I have patients that really, you know, they, they really for a while are not even understanding where they are and there's no boundaries between their physical body and the rest of the universe and their 
you know, they're, they're more amazed with it. So the amazement alone allows them to see this bigger picture of, wow, we are these people living here, but there's so much more to life than, than just our day to day. And that, that flexibility and the understanding or that awareness is very therapeutic, I think. But I, I think that how someone responds to a specific dose is also interesting. We can't really gauge that until they do it. But I'm not, you know, Ibogaine is very interesting to me, but I think there's that component of it where, you know, you're going there. It's not like a microdose. No, it is know? not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, this isn't like, a, this isn't like, you know, just just a, a low dose session. Like this is a life changing experience. So you, so you go into it in that sense and, and, and maybe that, you know, but that, but then you have the, like, I just had a friend who called me the other day who said, I went to a place and I did ayahuasca and now I came back and I really need help. And I'm like, why would you do that? You know, like, <laughs> like, what, what, like, what did you know that these people were not going to help you with integration? Of course not, because they don't even know what integration is. They're just going because they hear about it. It's going to be life changing. I've had some trauma and then they become traumatized. So there's so many aspects of this. I think, you know, supporting someone, having that comfortable space is so important. The dose is obviously important, but sometimes people have an experience that they're not expecting and it actually becomes positive after they work through it. Well, and I feel like that that's an expression of the legality. You know what I mean? If you have something that's underground and it's illegal and there's consequences to providing it, then you can't create systems that you have created that allow for following someone, having these therapists. And it seems like a lot of these places do exist, you know, in like in Jamaica where you have these resorts or retreats or whatever. But at the same time, like, you know, you just go and bang out some ayahuasca somewhere and you come back home. Yeah, you're going to be a little raw. Like you, you, you may have opened Pandora's box to your own emotional traumas. And lacking the infrastructure that you have created for ketamine is can be destructive and sometimes be more traumatizing than what you were before you know and yeah and then and then how do you pick the pieces up and move forward and who can you talk to about that like all those things are are very important yeah so you know we're kind of wrapping up a little bit and you know honestly this conversation was very refreshing i am really appreciative about what you're doing and the method in which you do it and so is, is there anything that you want to plug right now? Any work that you're doing, interviews, things, anything that you want to tell the audience? Um, I think one of the things that I'm working on is really trying to understand best protocols for long-term pain relief. That's that's something that's really important to me is to how, how, how little ketamine can I give and how long can it last for both pain and mental health. And that's something I think Medicare needs in order for us to get this approved. So to me, getting ketamine approved, not in an intranasal form for treatment resistant depression, but, you know, the ability for the physician to use it either IV, intramuscular, um, because I think what's so sad is that so many patients are suffering and it becomes this self-pay world of who can afford to pay for their treatments. And there's so many people that could benefit from it if insurance would cover it. So that's something that is really important to me and really just educating people on this whole concept of nosoplastic pain and things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and how there's this real understanding of chronic stress causing this change in our nervous system. So I like to bridge pain and psychiatry, you know, and I've learned so much from my psychiatrist friends and from even the therapists that I work with, but really just 
trying to treat the person, you know, really not making them a ICD-10 diagnostic code, but actually understanding who they are and supporting them so that they can have the fulfilling life that they want. No, I, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. And so, yeah, I guess we'll sort of wrap it up there. That was a, a great exit monologue. It was actually quite, quite well done. And ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michelle Weiner and inserts clapping right now. <laughs> if you're ever in South Florida, that's, that's where I practice and come, come visit. Okay. Awesome. It, it was a pleasure, pleasure speaking with you. You too. Thank you. Thank you.